You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Today's passage is in Genesis 12, 10 through 13, 1. It is on page 6 in the Bibles and the chairbacks in front of you. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake." When Abram entered Egypt and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for this time that you have given us to learn about you in your word. Lord, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's this fascinating moment in the book of Exodus. That's the book right after Genesis when... God uses Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Before they leave Egypt, of course, they plunder the Egyptians, taking all this gold, and they're led out into the wilderness. They they get out of Egypt, and there's this fascinating moment when they are camped next to the Red Sea. This huge body of water. You can find it in a world map there in the Middle East, and they're there on the Red Sea just a couple of days after being led from slavery, doing whatever you do a couple days later, you know, party poppers, celebrating fireworks, yes! When all of a sudden, Pharaoh and his chariots are heard and seen on the horizon. Pharaoh, mind you, he is the world power, probably the most powerful person on the earth at this time. And he is coming to get the Israelites who are probably a million strong. And he is going to make them come back to slavery. So the Israelites understandably are having a terrible time. They're worried. There he is. What are we going to do? And Moses stands up. This is the word God gives Moses to tell the Israelites from the text on the screen, Exodus 14, 13. Fear not, stand firm and see 
the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Can you imagine you just sitting there trapped? Red Sea, where you drown. Pharaoh, slavery. Some of you already know the story. If you don't, it's fascinating. Here's what happens. God splits the Red Sea in two. Just like that. Splits it in two. The Israelites, a million strong, walk through the Red Sea. Google tells me average depth of the Red Sea is a half mile. It's twice the Empire State Building. Imagine being an eight-year-old walking through there, looking up. Holy bajolies. Red Sea. It's called the Red Sea, Google tells me, because of the coral. It's beautiful. Imagine there, looking in there. My look. Fish. Coral. And they get to the other side, safely. All million of them. And then, Pharaoh, who'd been taken up by some fog, all of a sudden clears And Pharaoh and the chariots, they go through the Red Sea as well. They're going to get the Israelites when God has the Red Sea crash on them. And indeed, the Egyptians and Pharaoh, they are dead. They're never seen again. Then if you want to read the story, it's fascinating. It's chapter 14. And uh, they sing some songs, probably some more party poppers if they had any left. And then... You wouldn't guess what happens just one chapter later. That's 14. The end of 15, they ran out of some water and they start complaining and getting bitter at the Lord. Hey, Lord, we need potable water. Are you just going to let us fry out here? Don't you even care about us, don't you know? And, and, and I read that and you could read it too and it had me wondering, but that's just three days later from the miracle. Like the miracle of miracles. Like when when you had an 80th birthday, if you did, and, and they said, hey, uh, did, can you tell me like what's one of the highlights of your whole life? If an eight-year-old had been going through the Red Sea, when they turn 80, aren't they bringing that thing up in like the highlight reel of their life? Like one time, <laughs> one time I walked through the middle of the Red Sea <laughs> and it was like skyscrapers up there, whatever. I mean, you had this super awesome moment, and three days later, they, they can't imagine that God could actually provide potable water for them. We're going to need a water fountain out here in the wilderness. I guess you forgot about us, so. This morning, we're going to notice something just like this pattern that we see with the Israelites, because this isn't the only time that God shows up and blows up, and then the Israelites forget. In the life of Abram, we're going to notice that there is this incredible moment he has with God only just a few moments later for him to completely forget, ignore, disregard the promises of God. This problem happens with Abram. It happens with Israel. I wonder if it happens with us. Any of us in here ever see God show up and blow up and then just a couple moments later? A couple days later, we forget all the promises that God has given to us and disregard him. Now, to be fair, in our text, Abram, he didn't walk through the Red Sea, but 
in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3, he did have one of the most important verbal blessings from God himself. And just as Israel doubted God's promises to them in our text, Abram doubts his God's promises to him. And Abram's going to choose fear over faith in God's word. There's two big ideas in this section. The first is this. God's people are really messy. And the second is God's people don't get what they really deserve. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Genesis 12:10 so I can walk us through the text? I want to show you from Scripture how I draw these conclusions because this isn't Pastor Jeremy standing up saying whatever he feels like. My best attempt here is to say what God's Word says. Big idea number one, God's people are really messy. If you're taking notes, I draw this from verses 10 to 15. Let me show you from the text. God's people are really messy. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his, to Sarai, his wife, I know you are a woman beautiful and a the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. All right, so we're jumping into the text here and we see a couple goofy things. First of which is that there is a famine happening in the promised land of God. Okay, this is God's promised land and all of a sudden there's no food. Huh? Text doesn't tell us why. I think it's because God's letting Abram go through a crisis of faith to see how he's going to respond. That's my conclusion. And it leads Abram to immediately go down to the land of Egypt. But on his way to Egypt, the second weird part of this text, he looks at his wife and goes, Honey, you so fly. And and they they gonna know you fly. Pretty beautiful. Quit being a third grader. Uh, You're so beautiful. So you're going to need to lie. Which we find out later in the scriptures that indeed they are actually half brother and half sister. I can explain that some other time. But what Abram's asking is don't tell him we're actually married. So just don't tell the whole truth. Totally a lie. Totally a violation of the ninth commandment. You'll not bear any false witness against me. Just do this thing for me. Because if you don't, they're going to kill me. What a weird situation he puts his wife in. He's got to be so desperate that he needs his 65-year-old beautiful wife to lie. But a couple things to keep in mind here in Genesis 12:10. You've got to read the Bible within its bigger context. And in the context, if you look up in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you find one of the most famous passages in the book of Genesis. You can look there real quick. It's God's covenant to Abram. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It's one of the most famous passages in Genesis. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. When God comes, and you can look in the text, he makes Abram three promises. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you kids. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. So, So Abram hears the very word of God making this promise. And it's not just this much later. He's like, pack it up. We got to leave. Oh, I know God promised us this land, but we out of here. In fact, his transition is so quick in the text. You can see how close it is because 12, nine Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev. 
there's a famine in verse 10 and he tails it out of the promised land so much that one of the commentators puts it like this. The rapidity of the narration, it, it goes so rapid between Abram's journeying in 12.9 and his leaving in 12.10, it gives us the impression Abram walked right through and out of the promised land. Like God said, you go to the Negeb. And he goes, all right, let's go to the Negeb. And they're on their way there and they're like, oh, there's a famine. Let's just keep going to Egypt. (laughs) Abram's fear. His fear has overwhelmed his faith in God's word. And he's willing to put his wife at a terrible risk. So he tells her on the way of Egypt, just say we're not married. Pretend we're brother and sister. Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So if you're reading between the line, church, you're reading rightly. Pharaoh brings the woman, Sarai, into his house as if she will now be his wife. Seems like... Some argue Pharaoh has a harem. She's now in the harem. And I wonder how Abram slept that first night his wife was gone. Or that first week, what was Abram thinking? However long. Of course, our text says nothing about Abram, which I conclude, as do many others, that Abram says nothing because he is guilty. It reveals the author's way of showing Abram's guilt. But let's pause here at this section to consider a few takeaways, a couple application points. Here's the first one, and I think it's primary here at the top. The application positively stated would be trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. I'd love for you to write that down if you're taking notes. Trust in the Lord. The contextual connection between Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and then this event shows us, gives us this solid ground to conclude Abram's doing the very opposite of trusting in the word of the Lord. Instead of trusting God's promises of land and children and blessing, Abram takes matters into his own hands. He, he, he takes matters into his control and out of fear and paranoia that somebody's going to whack him when he gets to Egypt because of his beautiful bride, Abram is now worried more about self-preservation than he is his wife's well-being. And just like you and I can be reading this text, at least the way it works in my Bible, and I think, well, just, just look up a few verses... That's what I wish I could have told Abram. Just, just look up to 12, 1 to 3 in the promise of God. The God of the universe has promised you, bro. So famine, shmammon, trust the Lord. Fellows especially, I don't know about you, but I can resonate with times in my life and marriage where I've been afraid and more worried about self-preservation than my wife's well-being. 
those I love impacted by my lack of trust in the word of the Lord. For all of us, let us trust in the Lord. Take away number two, don't justify sin. Don't justify sin. This isn't explicit in the text, but here's the connection I see. Far too often, Christians focus on their end game. Their end game, which is good. Is it just the, the, the end game sounds good on paper, but far too often Christians think that if they have a good end goal in mind, it does not matter how they get there. And so I was thinking, okay, if we're going to be the most gracious to Abram, like give him the most generous benefit of the doubt that would help us understand why in the world would you do this to your wife, bro? Maybe Abram could say this. Well, buddy, I mean, look, God said he'd promise me to take care of me. And so since he's going to bless the whole world through my kids, I got to be careful. I got to be careful because I can't be a fool. And God gave me a brain. So I'm going to, I mean, since there's a famine, I'm, I'm supposing God gave me a brain. So I got to go where food is. And, and I know how things work in these cultures. So I just got to, I mean, if God's going to bless the world through my kids, I got to stay alive. And so here's how I'm going to stay alive. Just ask her to tell a little lie and, and I'll just figure it out. And then, and then, and then everything will be okay. Abram perhaps thinking, man, I don't want to mess up. God's promised to me. I'm kind of in control here. But even if that were true, even if that's exactly what Abram was thinking is, man, I'm just trying to do my part of helping God keep his promise to me. What he would need to realize is that God's not only concerned with his end game, God's concerned with his means. To say it a different way, God's not only concerned with where you want to go, he's concerned with how you get there. And obedience to the Lord means being faithful in both having godly ends and godly means. Both matter. See, God, God's looking in on our hearts, church, to see what's really going on in our hearts, both with ends and means. And while Abram might have been able to talk Sarai into lying for him, and while you may be able to talk someone into sinning to go along with you, Even if you have truly godly ends in mind, sinful means are still sinful. Friends, we can't justify sin no matter what, how awesome your end game is. The holiest end game doesn't justify sin to get there. We are not to give in to fear, but have faith in God's word that what God promised will come through. Final takeaway from this first point, especially for anyone here who might be checking out Christianity, dipping your toe in it, like what y'all about. God's people are really messed up. God's people are really messed up. If you're if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, you may think that the Bible's a book of rules. It just gives you a bunch of rules, follow them, good luck. <laughs> Best wishes as you obey them all. Or maybe you know better and you're like, well, I know the Bible's not a book of rules, but it is a book of heroes. And, and we're going to read about heroes and we're supposed to just do what they did. Don't do what Abram did. No, the, the Bible's not a book of rules. And it's not a book of heroes. In fact, if you read Genesis honestly, if you read it honestly, 
from the very beginning, Adam failed his wife. Cain failed his brother, actually killed him. Noah, he's not an example to follow. That guy's getting drunk after the flood, messing it all up too. And here's Abram, just a few verses after hearing a promise from the creator of the universe, instead of trusting God and having faith in his word, Abram is totally failing his wife and not being the man he's supposed to be. No, the Bible is not a book of rules and it's not about a book of heroes that we are supposed to follow. Rather, the Bible is about an amazing God who makes promises to really messy people and how he keeps his promises even when we mess up in really gnarly ways. That's not to say Adam or Noah or Abram or others don't have some bright spots. But the truth is, all of them are just like us. We're all really messed up. And sooner or later, we all fail God. But here's the best part. Even though God's people are really messed up, God, he keeps his promises again and again and again and again. And and we mess up and he keeps his promises. And, And you can be sure as you read through this, humans will mess up and yet God will keep his promises. In fact, that's the book of Genesis in a sentence. If I had to boil it all down, I'd say the book of Genesis is this. God keeps his promise. And it doesn't matter how messed up we are. So good news, good news. If you're checking Christianity out, you're like, well, look, I'm like really messed up. Good news. God loves really messed up people. And he forgives. And he'll keep his promises. Well, those are the Takeaways from this first idea. Trust in the Lord. Don't justify sin. God's people are really messed up. Move with me then to the second point that brings us to the end of our text. God's people don't really get what they deserve. I draw this from chapter 12, verse 16 to the first verse of chapter 13 from the text. And for her sake, Sarai, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And Abram was given, or Abram had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, so here's where we're at in the narrative. Now they've arrived in Egypt. Pharaoh has taken Sarai into his house. And now Pharaoh's given some gifts to Abram. And Abram's getting the hookup, yeah? I mean, you may not quite be so familiar when you're looking at your net worth about how many male donkeys are on your spreadsheet. But in those days, this was quite the 401k that he was. He's given him a lot of Bitcoin, if you will. This guy just made some bank. Abram's prediction in chapter 12, verse 13, when he said, hey, just say that we're brother and sister, so it will go well for me. Has come true. I mean, if this is Christmas, Abram's taken quite the haul. And it shows us right off the bat, Abram's not getting what he deserves. Abram's the schmuck who told his wife to lie. Meanwhile, his wife is in Pharaoh's house. Why is Abram, who made the mistake, benefiting? If you're honest with the text, you would say, that doesn't sit right with me. Abram's getting all this stuff. Sarai 
is in a bad position. But not only does Abram get what he doesn't deserve, all this material wealth. Look at what Abram doesn't get that he does really deserve from the text, 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and Pharaoh's house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. See, Abram may have been able to justify his sin to himself and perhaps talk Sarai into it as well. Hey, it's okay. Just follow me on this thing. But sin will not go unpunished. Amen? Sin gets punished. And what we see in verse 17 is Abram's sin, it does have consequences. It's just another person pays the price. And doesn't this strike you as odd that Pharaoh is the one who has the plagues? Who deserves the plagues? Well, Abram, of course, but it's Pharaoh and, and his house who is receiving all of the consequences. And this is what troubled me as I studied the text. Abram's the one who deserves it, but the person who seems to have some integrity in this story, Pharaoh, is the one who's getting them. Why is the good guy paying the consequences for the bad guy? That remind you of anything? To continue in the text, we don't know how Pharaoh figured out that Abram and Sarai were married. He doesn't tell us in the text, but he does figure it out. And so Pharaoh confronts Abram 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, "What? what is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Abram, why did you say, she's my sister, so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and Lot into the Negeb. Now if you scan up to chapter 12, verse 9, you'll see that Abram had started in the Negeb. That's a location. This is our author's way of Starting in the Negeb, and now he's back in the Negeb. So it's bringing this story to an end. That's how we know that this is one section of Scripture. But having finished with our text, Abram now have has traveled full circle. There was a famine. He left. He's back where he started. A couple takeaways. That I'd love for you to write down. Number one application. Material blessings are not proof you're living with integrity. Material blessings aren't proof you are living with integrity. This is not the primary application of this text. But I think it's a helpful one. I've been in some churches. I've been around some people. Maybe you have too. That like to conclude. That the primary barometer of God's blessing on us. Is our account balance. That, that, that God's stamp of approval is clearly seen if you're experiencing financial success. And sometimes you can be justifying sin and then seeing yourself grow profits and go, I guess God's good with it. Because look, he's obviously blessing me with a lot of money. But what we see in the text is Abram, he's making bank even though he's guilty of lying. 
Now, that, that's not to say that folks who are doing really well financially, or if you're doing very well financially, it doesn't mean you've committed some heinous sin. But it also doesn't mean that God's for sure stamping his approval on you because you're seeing financial success. I do think God honored your faithful giving this year and helped Mill Creek get out of debt. We shot confetti cannons because we're so excited about what God's doing. What I just want to make sure though we understand from the text is just because there is financial success does not automatically mean we have been exactly doing what God has wanted us to do. Don't immediately conclude that your wealth is some testament to your faithfulness. You did not earn your wealth by sinless perfection. Whatever finances God has given me, I didn't earn that because of my sinless perfection. No, if I got what I deserved, if you got what you deserved, it would be hell. That's what we deserve. And we're going to be faithful to God and let's have integrity. Let's do the right thing when people are watching and when they're not watching. And if God decides to give us extra money, fine, steward it well. Seriously, may he give you millions of dollars and then steward it well. But just know that there's plenty of people with integrity who are broke. They're just bad with money. Or maybe God has just said you're not going to have money. And there are plenty of people, filthy rich, who are terribly unfaithful. I think I've made my point. Material blessings aren't the primary barometer of your integrity. Takeaway number two, marriage matters. Now, now, again, I grant this isn't explicitly stated, but I couldn't help noticing how God's man, Abram, treats his marriage so casually. Whereas the pagan Pharaoh honors Abram's marriage. In fact, if you look at the two of them, Pharaoh gives more of a rip for Abram's marriage than Abram does. Pharaoh's more concerned about Sarai's well-being than Sarai's wife, which proves again, Abram's not an example to follow in this text. But it occurred to me when I was contrasting Abram and Pharaoh's response to marriage that Abram's attitude, frankly, mirrors our culture's attitude today. Marriage, eh, it's whatever. If it's convenient for me and it's going to play to my benefit, let's be married. But if I'm going to be threatened, then let's pretend like we're not married because marriage isn't that big of a deal. And though we may only be a handful of chapters into the book of Genesis, we can read between the lines and see how important the institution of marriage is. Marriage, it matters to God. It, it mattered to Moses. It matters in our text and it should matter to us. Our culture may treat marriage casually, but marriage is not casual. We shouldn't enter it casually. We shouldn't treat it casually. If you've made a promise to your spouse before God, you honor that promise. If somebody's talking about marriage casually around you, I'd encourage you to follow Pharaoh's lead here. Honor marriage. And if anybody's going to honor marriage in our culture, church, may it be us. Final takeaway. Especially checking out 
Christianity, what's primary here, God's people don't get what they really deserve. God's people don't get what they really deserve. I'd love for you to write that down. Here's what's most crucial from this section. If you're here and you're understanding sin on earth results in punishment in hell, then you understand what the Bible calls justice. For any of us who are not going to receive hell, we are not getting what we really deserve. See, if you've, if you've repented of your sin and you're part of God's people, what you've been promised from God is to get eternally what only Jesus deserves. See, Here's what I mean. As, as I mentioned, Abram ends up with all these material possessions from Egypt. And despite his obvious lack of faith in the promises of God, despite all of Abram's wealth and riches, he, excuse me, despite all of Abram's failures, he comes out of Egypt with all the wealth and riches. No, God's man didn't get what he deserved. Abram left, financially speaking, with what he didn't deserve. Whereas the one with integrity in our text, Pharaoh, ends up with plagues. If you're checking Christianity out, here's what this points to. Whenever sin is committed, sin must be paid for. And one of God's promises is he will punish sin. And friends, God is going to keep that promise. God has promised to punish sins. He will keep his promise. And in the Old Testament, if you were to read Genesis and Exodus, like we've been talking about today, you keep going into the third book, Leviticus. It's all about these sacrificial requirements and all of the process that the Israelites were to take to make peace with God because of their sin. So there was all of this elaborate cutting and blood splattering and take the fat and take the goat and take the bulls. And there's all of this sacrificial system that was so complex and all of it was to deal with their sin. In the Old Testament, that's how the Israelites dealt with their sin. But in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he is the once and for all sacrifice. It's Jesus' blood that is splattered everywhere. And it is Jesus' blood that once and for all makes peace with God despite our sin. And while contemporary culture around us may make light of sin in the scripture, God's holiness and our sin are humongous themes. God's holiness requires sacrifice to make peace with God. And according to the Bible, someone must be punished for sin. And biblically speaking, either you will be punished for sin or you can ask Jesus to be punished for your sin. Someone will be punished. If you've thought that God just takes your sin like some of this confetti and he just sweeps it under a rug and it's gone forever just because it's not how it works. No, somebody came and was punished for sin. The good news of the gospel, what this narrative points us to is that in Jesus Christ, 
we find the true and better biblical character who does not make the mistakes that everybody else makes. Adam, he fails God. Cain fails God. Noah fails God. Abram fails God. Jesus, he's the true and better. Even Israel fails God. But but Jesus walks through all of circumstances which are similar and he never fails God. Jesus not only faces a famine spiritually, but in the face of certain death, Jesus does not give in to fear, but he trusts the word of the Lord. And for all the ways you and I, like Abram, reject God's faithfulness and give in to fear, Christ died for our sins. If you believe in Jesus died on the cross, that he was raised on the third day. If you've repented of your sin, this is what God will do. All the blessings that Jesus has rightly earned, the eternal life that Jesus' perfect existence has deserved him, Jesus will give to you. And all of the eternal hell and punishment that you deserve, Jesus, he will take. Theologians call this imputation. Perhaps an easy way to understand imputation is you and I owe God financially billions and trillions of dollars in debt. Whereas Jesus has billions and trillions of dollars he's earned. And what Jesus is willing to do is put our name on his account. And then he takes his name and he puts it on our account. And it's what Martin Luther in 500 years ago called the great exchange. What he earned, he gives to us. What we earned, we give to him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, here's your question. Who will pay for your sin? Someone's going to pay for your sin. It's either you or it's going to be Jesus. But I'm telling you, you don't want to pay for your sin. Jesus would trade you. And in trading you, you would get what you don't deserve. For those here who are Christians, let's admit, God's people are messy. Amen. And as God's people, we don't get what we really deserve. But a final word for anyone here who's struggling to grant that despite our sin, God will keep his promises. If you're here, you say, man, I love Jesus, but I'm just really struggling to believe that despite our sin, God is really going to keep his promises, which is the sermon in a sentence. It's what I've been trying to argue for all day long. If you take one sentence away, that's the one I want you to believe. Despite our sin, God will keep his promises. You might be sitting there going, I, I, Pastor, how can you say that so confidently based on this text? And how can you be so sure that despite our sin, God will keep his promises? Here's how. In the story of Abram, he's in the promised land. There's a famine. He goes down to Egypt. His wife, Sarah, is enslaved. Abram ends up being given all of these material possessions and wealth. And then he leaves and goes back to where he started. Alive. 
God's promises in Genesis 12 are going to continue with Abram. But we see a pattern there. Because you might remember at the end of the book of Genesis, there's another famine. And it takes God's people down to Egypt. Where they get enslaved. And 400 years later, Moses shows up. And they get all this wealth from the Egyptians. And God takes them through the Red Sea. And he leads them back, ultimately, to the promised land. And what we see in our text is a pattern. Moses sees a pattern between what happens with the Israelites and the Egyptians in Exodus and what happens with Abram here. But the pattern points forward, proves that despite the sin of Abram, despite the sin of Israelites, God's going to keep his promises because that's what God's going to do. And you can believe it too. Whatever's gone on with you, whatever's happened, God keeps his promises because that's the God we serve. Despite our sin, God's going to keep his promises. If you're wrestling to believe that, let me pray for you now that God would open your heart to see how he works in his word that we might believe. Pray with me, please. Jesus, thanks for the chance to walk through this scripture. And I pray that your word would do work. Would you grant us grace, recognizing despite our sin, you will keep your promises. For anyone here, spirit, who doesn't believe in you, I pray you would do your work right now. They would call out in faith. Save, I pray. For those who do, give us confidence and bolden us to walk forward in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.